Blog Talk Radio. We sit in the house and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller and all we say is please at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel belt and radios and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not willing to do I want you to get mad. I want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman but I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime on the streets. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Um, 
reaching then also over the over the normal frequencies or normal radio uh, as many people as we can with our message. Fantastic. Uh, looking forward. I, I definitely want to listen to that. I think that would uh, it's going to be sounds like it's going to be a great show just from talking with you earlier and uh, having uh, been an acquaintance with you on social media for some years now. Um, we also have another guest with us, and his goes by I Am Cap, and uh, we definitely uh, pleased to welcome him back. He was with us in episode two, and uh, you probably, uh, if you watched that episode or listened to that episode, then you'll realize that uh, one of the quotes that he gave us uh, is actually at the end of our intro tonight. So, uh, Chris, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, absolutely. Well. I'm an uh, American. I've uh, lived in, um, I'm not sure it's as socialist as, uh, as Johannes, uh, but California, <laughs> probably most the most socialist place in America, um, besides maybe New York. I am studying business administration. I've been uh, active in the libertarian movement for about, I want to say, uh, four or five years. Um, been a libertarian probably since I was uh, an early teenager, young teenager, uh, and I have uh, written for a number of very large publications on the uh, on the internet. Uh, Liberty Hangout, being libertarian, the Libertarian Republic, um, you know, just just uh, a, a number of different uh, places have reposted my work and republished me. I run a YouTube channel. And I'm currently the co-owner and managing editor of the RevolutionaryConservative.com, along with Augustus Invictus. Um, you know, I've 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 been around the block, uh, so to speak. And uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, I consider myself a Austro-Libertarian, right-wing Libertarian nationalist, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so I've uh, that's my introduction, and I'm looking forward to proceeding with the broadcast and being on the show again. It's, it's usually really fun. Fantastic. Thanks for the introduction. Um, just to throw this out here, I mean, of course, David and I are in every episode, uh, and I think we just lost Dave for a minute, so I'm going to run through mine real quick. Uh, I've been around for a while as a libertarian, uh, close to two decades, conservative libertarian. Uh, currently, Wrapping up a graduate degree in political theory, and I've written some, some papers out there which I've published on uh, places like Liberty.me and, and other locations. I uh, did some did some writing for uh, Western journalism, uh, and I also have done writing for a few other on online uh, publications. Uh, primarily, uh, uh, I'm, I've just spent a lot of time <laughs> studying and. and so on. So, uh, you know, no, nothing, we're just going to be sort of modest here. Uh, now, David, on the other hand, uh, he'll, he'll probably be even more modest than any of us. And uh, But just so you guys know, this this whole podcast was an idea that, that David gave to me at one point. And so, you know, and half of the content is his, comes out of his brain. And certainly this special episode is his uh, brainchild. So, David, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, it'll probably be fairly quick. <laughs> um, uh, my name is David German. Uh, I'm out in the working world, and and I uh, 
been into uh, libertarianism since I was about 17, 18 is where it started. Uh, and and I've read into uh, um, Spooner and and um, then well, you, Rothbard. You started, out a, you started out sort of as an anarcho-syndicalist at one point and sort of migrated uh, over to, to becoming an anarcho-capitalist, didn't you? Yes, yes. Uh, I liked the writings I used to of uh, Noam Chomsky. It's embarrassing to admit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but you have that. You have an understanding there that some people may not have, and so that's good. Yeah. All right. So, so I think to be fair, to kind of start this out, I mentioned uh, Hoppe earlier, and one of the things that uh, is a big deal, and I think we have to we have to start this off with because it sort of lays the groundwork for the rest of our conversation going forward. Um, I, I sort of want to talk about time preference. I think it's extremely important. I think it's a, it's a basic subject to, that, that has an effect on, like I said, our entire conversation. So, uh, Johannes, are you, uh, what, what is your understanding and thoughts on the idea, Hopper's ideas of time preference? Um, to, be, uh, to be honest, I have to, I, I mostly agree with him, but I think um, that uh, the problem with democracy is more systemic than just okay. uh, it, it is. Uh, how can I can I, how can I explain it uh, to you? Uh, representative democracy was built up as a way to give people a voice in a central for taking political decisions. In a time there was no technical possibilities for it. This is the first point. And second, the power was not con- not so concentrated like it is now. Uh, the cause, because uh, uh, countries like Switzerland had for so long a democracy that works so well, uh, is because the people take the decisions for themselves when it comes to taxation, when it comes to exp- uh, expenditures and, and, and things like that. Our, represent- our real problem with democracy is not, is not the citizen taking the decisions for themselves and contrary to the monarchy, with the monarchy taking uh, decisions for everybody else, but it is that we gave away our right to take these decisions to representatives that can only be elected if they promise something uh, to give you something paid by the money of other people. So you are conf- uh, creating conflicts between uh, you have the first big conflict that is these people want the power, wants to be elected, and then the second big uh, big conflict that is one that these people to get elected use. Uh, the uh, use force to pay a part of the electorate with the money of the other part of the electorate to vote for them. And it's just a question about power. It's not even a question about how do you use uh, that power in the long term. The first objective of these politicians, all of them, is to keep in power. It's, it's the sense of a political system. Well, 
Well, wouldn't you say then, Johannes, that if you were going back to where I was talking about time preference, of course, high time preference meaning that you don't mind uh, waiting a little while for an investment to give you larger returns rather than low time preference, which means taking something right now and foregoing the, the future returns. Uh, someone of high time preference, politicians are high time preference because they're only concerned with their next election and the people that they deal with are are uh, high time preference because they want to get something now. They're electing you to get now to get something now. And so the politicians, since they don't own the resources that they're promising you, have no reason to not give it to you now because giving away public goods has no long term uh, negative effects for them. But as I said, it depends from uh, about the system. If you have a representative uh, system, you will have this problem. But when you have a system like uh, Switzerland, you see it for uh, two or three years ago that uh, they were promised a basic income from the state from around thirty thousand dollars or something like that. It's not 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 less money what they were promised to, but. The people itself, voting in a plebiscite, voting in a referendum, decided that they didn't want that because it was bad for all together. Uh, the referendum. But there are much. I mean, just to be fair, and I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but isn't yep. I mean, Switzerland's a much, much smaller nation than, for instance, the United States, and really even smaller than, say, France or Great Britain. But it is much uh, okay. But that's the question about numbers, because Switzerland is uh, much more complex than France, or even uh, if if you want to say it like Germany, you have in in uh, Switzerland three different nations, three four different nations coexisting in Switzerland. That's the Germans, the French, yeah, right. the, the Italians, and the uh, Roman. Uh, uh, Romandi. Uh, I, I okay. don't know how Romania, to, uh, to translate. Romanians. No, no, it's not Romanians, but it is. Uh, it is. It is a remain of the old uh, Roman uh, people who used to live there. It's also a kind of Italian, but they don't understand. It's Celtic uh, Romans. Right. Okay. okay. So ancient and more of an ancient society. Ancient, still with some ancient ancient stock of people. Yes, you have four okay. nations there with four different languages that uh, most of them don't speak the language of the others. You have to imagine that. But they, are, uh, they have come to an agreement so they can govern themselves uh, directly. And interestingly, okay. this, had, this has worked. You can say, okay, they have all the same culture, they have all more or less the same uh, uh, religious beliefs. Uh, you have Catholics and you have Protestants, you have the two. Uh, but it is, it is I think, uh, when the people have to take decisions for themselves, they're much more, uh, if you want to say it like this, paleo-libertarian, as you can uh, even imagine. The Switzerland has, has so, more weapons per head than the United States. Right. Uh, well, you go. So you go. F yes, please. Well, well, well I, I wanted to for a second. I wanted to. Uh, we've got 
uh, Chris, I am Cap on here, and and I kind of wanted to ask Chris, you know, to sort of, you know, what what do you think about the idea, Chris, that that it is systemic as opposed to um, just a, an actual uh, basic fundamental flaw in democracy altogether, which is what Johannes. I think I think I think I'm right in saying that he feels that the problem is mostly systemic. What do you think about that, Chris? That's correct. Well, um, the way I see time preference, um, I, I see it as uh, as systemic, but I see its primary issue in the financial system um, because the the way time preference really manifests and the way these our modern countries are being destroyed is that. You have a fiat currency that is uh, essentially creates massive amounts of uncertainty about the future. So if uh, if I don't know what my money is going if to be worth in ten years, for, yeah. For just a, for just a moment, if I may, when you say fiat currency, what do you mean by fiat currency? Well, I mean that fiat currency doesn't actually have anything backing it other than state power. Right. Um, They're just printing printing money, basically. Right. It's not based upon scarcity like Bitcoin. It's not based upon uh, intrinsic value like gold or scarcity like gold. It doesn't have an actual scarce value. Um, Okay. Okay. I just wanted to – I just wanted you to elaborate just a little bit for people who might be listening that are not familiar with the term fiat. Go ahead with the rest of what you were saying about time preference and democracy. I'm, I'm sorry. Just... Okay. okay, so you, you've, got, uh, you've got this currency. Now, nobody is going to know how much money the U.S. government is going to print in 10 years. No one. It could change overnight. It could change in three months. They could decide 10 years from now to completely undo what they, they plan to do now and change it again. I don't know what my money is going to be worth in 10 years. I'm uncertain about it. So I'm going to become very present-oriented with my money. Uh, I'm, and, and the number one thing that people make decisions on is how much resources they have right now. So if you don't have a good amount of resources right now and you don't you – don't, uh, or you, you might have a decent amount right now, but you don't know what you're going to have years from now. You're not going to save. You're not going to invest as much. You're not going to be able to plan. So you're going to consume right now, and you're going to elect officials that want to uh, you know, uh, facilitate your ability to consume right now. And you've been – people have grown up in this atmosphere where they uh, – this is all they've known is this consume now mentality. So when someone comes along and says, hey, we need to have a financial structure that is committed to the future, it might sound good to some people who might be predisposed to that. But at the end of the day, most people have been uh, raised in this society of consume now. So you get a culture of consumerism, and out of that comes very high time preference. So that's what I think the system is actually based around um, is is the root of it is in the money system, uh, you know, in, in my point of view. Well, that makes sense to me because everything is based around credit. Borrow right now, and you and instead of with, with with low time preference, you 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 forego right now for more later. Where it's like it, 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 the credit system, the financial system has inverted that and turned it on its head, and it's borrow right now, pay more for it later to get it right now, 
and which goes right along with what you're what you're saying there. So that's a very very good point, um, David. Uh, you have anything that you want to add, or any questions that you would like to ask? Um, I think democracy as like a it it just tends to do that. It tends to appeal uh, to the masses, and the masses of uh, and these and the time preference rates uh, uh, they. They grow from that. They grow from the politicians uh, pandering to what people want right now, so that the politicians' time preference rate will will rise, and then people's time preference rates will what rise, and right, and the yeah, uh, I can see that, and the um, small having a like. Johannes said having a smaller state is essential, having a smaller locality, uh, because once you have a uh, politician, have all these politicians over a large area. I was I was listening to uh, The Advantages of Small States by Hoppe before um, this episode, and he said that having a small state, the the larger states have uh once they grab a whole once they have a whole territory they want to invade 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 they want to uh extrapolate resources from themselves and invade uh, other places to get resources cuz they uh build up on debt ah uh, okay that's that's a good point. So they 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 end up being strapped or saddled with a lot of debt. So they have to continue to try and expand their economy in order to deal with that debt from from and, and the money printing. Um, so so I guess one of the questions I have is uh, um, considering this, um, I think that from from where I'm at. Um, I would say that there's something to be said that democracy under the right circumstances could could conceivably be successful. However, I have a tendency personally to feel like that it would be more successful uh, in a in an environment where or or in a society that's very small. I can, I personally cannot see democracy probably functioning any any better um, than say at the municipal level, which would be at the yes. city government level or even smaller. And that uh, you want, and, and you can see that because you see the Greek city state. So, if you look at uh, um, Athens, which was a direct democracy, uh, not representative, but but it was just one city, and uh, they were direct, you know they were able to make it function, and when it seemed to work okay for them, um, but they still had some problems with certain uh, shystery characters. Uh, uh, getting a, getting a getting sway over the populace and convincing them to sometimes do things that were not necessarily in their interest in the long run, but might have been in that one person's interest. Um, but you know, all good points. So, so uh, Johannes, what what do you think about what Chris and what David have said there, and what I've I've thrown in? What is your what is your uh, comment uh, regarding that? I think there are two points when we have to clarify. First is we don't we're not speaking about uh democracy in this case we're speaking about representative democracy. That's okay. that's uh, that's another thing uh, that's a complete another thing. 
because a representative uh, democracy, in uh, differentiating it uh, from direct democracy, uh, has these flaws of uh, people grabbing power for themselves and paying for this power with the money of their own subjects and playing one subjects against subjects for guaranteeing their own power. That's the first thing. And the second thing is I'm not so convinced about the peacefulness of little states. Because if we go to the definition of Max Weber uh, about what is a state, it's the organization that holds the monopoly of uh, violence in a, in, a, in a territory, that could apply the same for a gang, for example. Uh, for uh, yeah. any, 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 any kind of violent organization. And if we see the history of Germany on the time that it was split and very little uh, first uh, uh, in, in, in the medieval times and little states, or we, mm-hmm. or we look to the, to the history of northern Italy where it was the same, or Greece for, for, for a uh, more ancient example. You see that that were not really peaceful, uh, peaceful times. They were. Uh, I, Mil- I, agree. Uh, I agree. The city, the city of Milan, was all the time at war with with uh, Florence, uh, Florencia, and with Vene- Vene- uh, Venezia, and the Germans man, was hitting each other's heads man, as long they were not defending against the Ungarn, uh, the people from Hungary. And the French were doing the same. We have the, we had the War of the Roses in in uh, England, with a little, very little central power. Uh, the gangs, if you want to call them like that, start to fight each other uh, for more power. And, and that it's not not really important how how big the state is. It's the logic uh, behind power that drives you to do that. The only ones who have well, kept them. S- Excuse me. Well, I, I well, I, I just wanted to say that I think I think in terms of, of power, um, I I don't know that the point that that um, I was making or maybe even Hoppe was making was that was that a little state would be more peaceful necessarily. I think that in the, in the concept of the terms and I well, and I guess where David was talking about, they start to look for uh, resources outside of their area, but that he says that's it at a larger state. And, and I think what, what my point was is that uh, smaller states are when democracy works best for the people who are engaging in it, that a large democracy, for instance, you, you couldn't have direct democracy in the United States. I, I don't believe you could do that here because uh, you would essentially have what, what we call in the United States, and, and you, I'm sure you've heard this term before, tyranny by the masses or tyranny yeah. of the majority. Um and, and I think that that's that's where you start to reason why you start to find nations that that uh, put up representative democracies like you see in the United States is because they're trying to protect some of the, the smaller groups that might normally get crushed by what what comes down to mob rule. I don't um, necessarily so, so agree. Yeah. You have well, well, a con- I, you have I, in Switzerland you have also a constitution that protects the people from the decisions of majorities. So. The protection, uh, the protection uh, in the United States is not guaranteed by the by the representative democracy, 
but it is uh, protected by your own constitution and by, and more important than that, by your will to keep this constitution in power. But doesn't doesn't Switzerland have a have a representative body? Yes, a but it is. Of uh, yes, it has. But it is it is it is uh, matched. Uh, how can I say it like this? It's checked. It's checked and balanced by the system of uh, referendums. That means every time the parliament passes a law that doesn't fit to the interests of the people, you need thirty thousand or forty thousand signatures. And you go, you can go, and you can force the parliament first to repeal a law, or you can force the parliament to create a law that the people wants to have. Well, but in the United States, I mean, we have mechanisms like that as well. I think what we're looking at here is a, is a more democratic representative democracy than maybe what we have in the states. But I think you're still dealing with a, a, represent, a representative democracy there. Not really, you know, because, for example, like I, I, well, I contrasted with Greece, where they had a a direct democracy. There were no, there was no parliament. You went down to the agora, you tossed stones in a barrel. They counted the stones, and whatever, whichever had the most stones, that's the law. And and anybody who was a citizen could vote. Yeah, and but whereas three, when but, you have a, a legislature, it's a totally different ballgame. These are representative people who were elected. By democratic but process in any legislature, Greece didn't had a constitution. No, no, I, and I, the, and the I Greek cities that. didn't I mean, had constitutions. So in 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 uh, Switzerland, you have also the system that uh, um, also a majority of the people in a referendum cannot, for example, vote to uh, to get your human rights off. There is no, and I, there is a, and I and I know what you're saying. I'm just saying that I'm not sure that that having a constitution qualifies you as as a as not being a, a representative democracy. Um, no, I, didn't I was I, I saying that I was saying that that uh, direct democracy with constitution, what is applying and is being uh-huh. enforced, is another thing than a representative uh, democracy, where. The people has given away the right to take decisions over their own lives to uh, a third, and they have given it okay. away for 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 four years. You have no possibility to change anything about the decisions right. taken. But you look now in Switzerland, something you would love in the United States. They are now having a election about the income tax. Uh, a referendum well, about the income tax because the income tax in Switzerland is not permanent; it has to be renewed every 15 years. The law. Well, I mean, I and I and I think I I think I know what you're saying. I mean, I I kind of understand where you're where you're coming from, and and I and I I can I can sort of get what you mean, but I I will say I mean because this this would create a, a huge conversation drilling down into a lot of different levels about democracy and and how it functions and what. You know what layer, what does what, and how does the constitution limit the the government, and how does the people, you know, how, what what keeps the people uh, doing this, and why does the government not do that? But I think I think that what where maybe we disagree then is you're saying that you believe that with the proper structure, and, and I think it's a valid point. I, I don't want you to. You're saying that with the with the proper structure, uh, proper system, that a democracy can function properly, and I think that. 
uh, you're saying that there are fundamental flaws. There are, there are flaws, but they're in the there are systemic flaws in other democracies that are failing. Whereas David and, and I and Chris kind of come to the table saying democracy is fundamentally flawed as a system, period, and that it doesn't work as well as some other systems that are out there. So, so, and I'll give you that. I, I don't think that that uh, you've been disproven on on any of your points. I think I think that you you make some solid points, Johannes. Um, uh, so what I wanted to do is kind of move to the next. We've, we've put about a half hour into this topic. Um, I do want to give you a chance, Johannes and, and David and Chris, to make one last quick hit on this topic before we move on. Uh, anything that you want to throw in there, Johannes, before we move on? Yeah, first, I, I didn't want it to uh, sound as I was when just for democracy. I think when a good monarchy is better than a representative democracy. And a good direct democracy is better than a representative democracy. Everything is better than a representative democracy by now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, That's a very good point. <laughs> okay, you. so um, don't yeah. don't don't think when I'm I'm just I'm, I'm just to make the point. <laughs> no, 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 I think you're making a great point, and I think you made it very well. Thank you, um, uh, Chris. A quick hit on this uh, before we move on. Anything that you'd like to add, real quick, before we go to the next topic? Well, um, you know, I, I I still take the anarcho-capitalist position on most of these things. Where personally, I believe that um, it's it's analogous to a grocery store. Uh, this the democracy in a sense. If you want uh, your food or your resources you get the food or resources that the other patrons decide should be available. Um, the only difference to me between a democracy and a representative democracy is that you're now picking people to represent to choose which groceries you pick out. Uh, both are fundamentally dysfunctional. Um, the, the only possible way that I, I think you, you can have a, a, a reasonable uh, democracy in, in any form of government is if you have people who have a vested interest, i.e. the shareholders or actual uh, owners of the store get to decide what is on the shelves for everybody, what, what people get to pick out. So that's my take. Uh, I, I personally don't think either can work for very long. Either will collapse within a couple hundred of year, hundreds of years, um, maybe more, maybe less, but uh, that's my take on it. All right. Thanks for that, uh, Chris. Appreciate that. And David, I'm going to give you the last word here before we move on to the next topic. What What is your input here? Um. Yeah. What basically what Chris said. I think that democracy, uh, in any form, uh, tends to grow. Some democracies may be preferable, and that might ha even have a lower time preference rate but I think eventually it will spark and grow and grow because uh, uh, I think it's at the root of democracy is to um, is it's it gives uh, power to people uh, who aren't owners over the um, who are just managers of the law and managers uh -huh. of commons it gives them yeah. the Without, because they don't, because they don't take the losses. The people in the economy take the losses. Uh, once, you, if great yeah. point you're making there, um, 
Yeah, I think you, you I think you went right to the heart of the matter. Uh, and, but I, I still I still think I find myself uh, agreeing with Johannes to the in the sense that um, you know. Uh, some democracies are preferable to others, and I think you even said yes. that just now. I, I, I yeah. mean, he, he was far from saying that he just loved democracy, but he was yeah. making a good point that that really is a massive flaw in representative democracy. Yes. So, okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, so one of the things that we want to talk about, because this goes back to the, the, the low time preference, high, high time preference concept, um, is the idea of privately owned property versus the commons. And one of the issues that we find is, and we and it is really at the heart of why I, I have a problem with democracy is the commons and how it's managed and so on, which is something that David just made the case for beautifully. Um, and so I think we should move on to that next because democracy has some very unique problems with dealing with, with common ownership. Uh, Chris, um, what is your what is your feeling and your take as far as the problems, the flaws in in uh, common goods, public goods, commons, and so on? Tragedy of the commons and democracy. What's what's my problems with the problems of democracy? Well, and the, you know the the public goods question, uh, co- public ownership of the commons uh, versus you know in a in a democratic system. Regardless of whether it's pup, whether it's a representative democracy, direct democracy, or any kind of democracy, um, you know the the issues that arise from from we were talking about low and high time preference earlier, you know the, the commons. David almost kind of gave us a perfect segue into this. What, what's your your take on 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 how that's affected in a, in a democratic system? You know, I, it's I think I, I somewhat uh, outlined that in my last uh, my last little spiel. Um, Problem I have with it is that it's uh, it's it's like a grocery store. That's that's the analogy I've heard, and that that's one I like. Is it collectivizes um, the losses and uh, and uh, privatizes the gains. So you have everyone, and it's like a pasture. Even farmers taking their 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 livestock to a pasture. Whoever gets there first. Uh, will get the maximum amount for their livestock. They'll get fat and happy, and they'll leave. And whoever had the misfortune of being their last uh, is is kind of left holding the bill. You know, they're all paying for it, but their cattle uh, now uh, stood in line, and and they weren't able to get anything. Uh, and and it doesn't equally represent how much everyone paid. Um, you know, it, it's. It's 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 like there's there's many many it's examples I could go on. Yeah, and yeah, I'm seeing this in my state here. Um, if you go into a hospital now, and I've I've had the fortune of not getting sick or injured for probably a decade, um, but if you go into a hospital now in California, I've I've been to one regardless. You will see people there who have headaches, people there who have a fever. Uh, just a mild fever, people there uh, who who cut themselves. And you will have to wait in line. I had to wait in the waiting room for half an hour. This was five, ten years ago uh, with a broken arm while I waited for some illegal immigrants with a fucking headache to go ahead of me and my arm sitting there throbbing and dying and, and well, not dying, but you get the point. I felt like I was dying. While these people right. who didn't pay shit 
got to got to go ahead of me. And and that's that's the whole that's one way of putting it. Um, you know, I come from an upper middle class family. You know, probably upper if you really think about it. Uh, we have paid literally hundreds of thousands of dollars into taxes, and we have just as much to show about it as a border hopper. So I'm not I'm not happy a fan of this system uh, because they can legally gang up on me and uh, take my money. You know, one of the things you're pointing out there is that they, this is we get back down to the question of of net taxpayers versus latecomers. You know, and, and seriously, uh, I also want to make the point uh, as Johanna's first first time on the show is we, this is uh, we're rated R, yeah, for a reason because we don't we don't necessarily hold our tongue, we we, we do curse um, from time to time. So just to throw that out there, anybody listening as, as well, uh, we're gonna we're gonna drop an F bomb and so on occasionally. But yeah, so so that's that's kind of the whole point, uh, you know, the the low time preference versus the high time preference. Uh, these guys, you have people who are coming in who are not here legally, and there's no cost, there's no benefit, there's no negative side effect to them taking advantage of the system they've never paid a dime into, and and the system that they may leave next month, they may go back home and leave it here, for the people who cannot just leave. So it, it's kind of a negative situation for for the people who live here all the time, in a way. Um, Johannes, uh, where where do you kind of fall in on on com- the commons versus privately owned property, and which one do you think is preferable in the long run for, because of uh, ownership versus you know the, the the whole common ownership thing? You know, you look at it and say, well, for common ownership, the guy who pays almost who pays nothing. Uh, has total access to the same system to the guy who actually pays for it, and the guy who actually pays for it has no um, has no no real ability to um, uh, exercise any sort of property rights over it at all. Well, you have a lot of levels to make the analyze uh, to uh, to make this analysis. Uh, the first is, of course, when uh, if you have a central government like in this case California. Uh, that is disposing over public goods uh, in uh, to uh, to support people who are not owners of this public go- uh, goods. Uh, then you're speaking about um, how this expropriation of the property of the owners of the common goods in the United States itself and California itself. That's something, man. What your political system have been doing, but ours too, for too long. Uh, I, I myself don't have principally a problem with, with having uh, a common property at, uh, as, long, as long as it is in a very small scale. That means, uh, that means very deconcentrating and not in the hand of a central state. That means if you have, for example, uh, a municipality, and this municipality has public goods, well, it makes sense. For that one uh, to uh, to happen, what it makes no sense is that one municipality one decides, or the people of one municipality decides one over the public goods of another, and that's what's happening now with central states. Uh, that central states have own uh, have the control of of property is a very new development, by the way. Not even the kings had something like that. For the king to have an, uh, uh, to become resources of, from the commons, yeah, that's because that's why when uh, they developed the, the, the 
Chamber of Commons in the English Parliament, they had to ask for a grant. That wasn't that wasn't taxes run that could have just been put up by the king. The the Commons granted the king money he needed to make I don't know to build a fleet. But they that there was their will to give this money away. Today, we're not not even putting in the position to say no to a central state deciding absolutely autonomous about the uh, about the property of the commons. And I think that's the very very big problem we have, and it is also a pull factor for uh, an immigration that would not be in the position, or for immigrants that would not be in the position to survive in the United States without one, this, uh, this uh, distribution of wealth. I, I think that, that is, that's a good analysis. And, and one of the things that I see, that you see it in Europe and you see it in the United States, and it was actually a Harvard study done um, uh, years ago that showed that immigrants literally grouped up into states that offered the highest amount of payout and benefits to those immigrants. So you'd actually see more, especially the illegal immigrants, the, the ones where illegal immigrants were able to obtain the most services and most public goods, That those were the states they tend to gravitate towards. And I think that goes back to uh, what you're saying, that you're drawing all these people in. If people call them immigrants, I, I don't have a problem with calling them illegal immigrants. And, and to be honest with you, I, I hate it when people tell me, oh, you know, the United States is a nation of immigrants, because I'm going to be honest with you, we're not. The United States is a nation of settlers. The people who came here originally were not immigrants. They were settlers. They came to a place from Europe where there was a lot of civilization and a lot of infrastructure at, you know, fairly high civilization at the time to a place where there was none and built infrastructure and built a fantastic place to live. And now people are coming later. And thus we call them latecomers when we talk about our form of political theory. But they're settlers, not immigrants. Um, Dave, I don't know if you can. Uh, may I make go, go a ahead. little? Sorry, uh, I don't know if you can say, man, that you're not being settled now, because these people <laughs> were coming in to the United States. I myself, I'm Chilean. Okay, I'm Latin American. I was uh, born and grown there, but you. When you let in millions of people from a foreign country with a different culture, with a different labor moral uh, into your country, your country changes in the way these people are and are socialized. If you go to the north of the United States, you will see one, okay, it looks a little like Sweden. If you go uh, to Florida, it looks a, li a little like, like Cuba. And if you let one, um, and, and yes, of course. And if you go on to Berlin and to the to the uh, capital city of Germany, you say, well, okay, now we're arriving in some some parts of the city. We're arriving in Arabia or in Turkey. Uh, so you're being settled. We're being settled. There's no immigration. Immigration if is when you get one around thirty thousand or forty thousand persons one a year. They come in. They marry, they uh, delude into the population, and you can't forget it because they 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 they, w they become part of your of your of your own people. They assume your values by millions. That can't happen like that. 
they 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 so, take so the I, land. I think I, well, I think I think I, I understand. I think you make a good point. I think you do. You make a very strong point. Um, uh, and when I say settler, I think what I'm I'm saying is is that I'm, I'm talking about people who who come on come to a frontier land where there's nothing and settle there and homestead it and make something out of it. And when I talk probably better, better. I, I think, but you might but but I think we'd be better off calling them invaders as opposed to settlers at this point. You know, and settlers come to a place where there's really almost nothing, and there wasn't very much in the in the North America when people came here. There were some indigenous people, but there weren't very many of them. Lots of wide open area, and I think what you're dealing with now, or what we're dealing, are invaders. Uh, because they're not assimilating and they are essentially taking over areas both in Europe and the United States. Um, so, Dave, do you have anything you want to add to that real quick? Yeah, the idea that um, latecomers have a special uh, – have a spe- have, can gravitate the same commons that we can, that they have a right to trespass <laughs> – Right. Uh, yeah, they, they, they don't. Good. Uh, it's it's to me it's uh, about as communism as you can get. Uh, the um, well, yeah. So if if I paid into the property of of uh, under as a tax victim, if I paid into the property that. Um, I, as a taxpayer, have paid into a tax victim. Uh, I have an exclusive right to use it. Um, someone who hasn't uh, paid into it through taxation is a um, is uh, someone who hasn't paid into it is, is be it someone who's sort of living a, off of me. You're it's, talking it's, about a late customer or, or yeah. sort of someone who's coming in. They're, they're, essentially a, they're essentially a free rider. They're coming in to free ride, yes. and they're expropriating property. Well, um, Chris. It's theft. You, I heard you say that. Oh, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. I, did, I didn't realize you had more. Go ahead. It's theft. It's. Um, I personally think that. Something I've heard uh, Jared use before. It's uh, ethnomasochism. Oh uh, yeah, you're talking uh, Jared Hatfield said this. Okay, well, um, and that and that's probably about right. If, if we if we bring people in on purpose, we subsidize their living, and, and we do this. And in a lot of cases, we do, we do this at the behest of companies who are looking for cheap labor. We we literally pay half of the cost of the labor for the product. Excuse me, that we're consuming. And so we say, oh, we need that cheap labor, but we're not. But what we're doing is we're masking the cost of the product on the back end because they're getting uh, free. They're getting free benefits and in infrastructure that we're having to pay for on that side. Uh, Chris, I heard you. Want, you were trying to say something a minute ago, and I wanted to hear what you had to say before we move forward. Well, all I wanted to say was that um, okay, I, I you know I think Johannes makes a, a really really good point here. You know, it's not easy to change my mind, um, but in a way he's right. They they are kind of settlers. They are they are settling. Um, it, it's if you think about it this way, there is white flight out of these areas um, that that for a number of different reasons. But the biggest one is is because of the change in culture. So when these white people flee 
from the areas that are actively becoming a shithole. Uh, people from <laughs> other countries come and they, they settle. They settle that area. They settle the abandoned open area. But the difference is, is that uh, the white people left because of an invasion. So what I would say to the most accurate is, you know, they're, the, both, both groups are settlers. That's for sure. Uh, but one group is a group of homesteaders who did it right. They found swaths of land. They traded for the Native Americans, gave them guns, gave them medicine, bought uh, the land, and they, they homesteaded and they made property. These other people, they consumed benefits, they did drugs, they broke the law, they drove out the indigenous population, and they settled there. So that's the big difference that I wanted to get across. Okay, and, and that well, see, that's why I, I, I kind of saw it as three groups. Settlers, which would be people coming to a place where there's virtually nobody. I mean, there's like three and a half million people on the total of the North American continent when Europeans started to land on the east coast of the continent. I'm not trying to downplay um, any, any sort of uh, negative feelings or, or, or negativity that, that the indigenous people might feel about that. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is that I think it's very different to come to a place with no infrastructure. Pretty much 99% of it was open frontier land uh, that could not be used and <clears throat> managed to uh, set up an infrastructure and a system to extract resources and a fairly vibrant uh, civilization, and and that that was my point. And and because of that, I see that different as immigrants who integrate, like Johannes pointed out, which I think was a very astute point. That I see that that last group that he's talking about as invaders. They're coming in, and in a lot of cases, largely against the will of the the people that live there now. And they're doing it at the behest of large corporations and companies who are seeking cheap labor or uh, politicians looking for cheap votes and a way to perpetuate the welfare state and, and the government as it is. But um, so, uh, David, um, uh, so, David, where do you fall in on the open versus closed borders debate? I think I know the answer to this, but. Um. I yeah I'm definitely for um, close close borders because <laughs> uh, it's a violation cool. of because uh, it's a violation yeah, sure. of uh, property rights to um, free move free movements uh, I've said this on the I think on the last episode I, uh, yeah if I can just waltz right through your property uh, without asking you then uh, that's that's socialism. Um, you can't say, um, "Oh, I, uh, this this road's um, impeding my movement, so I'll just walk right through it." Right. Uh, even though I have, uh, even though I'm not invited to walk on it, I'll walk on it. So you're you're essentially saying that that they're by default being extended property, some some form of ownership over property that they don't really own because they're yes. allowed to just walk anywhere they want on it, do whatever they want. Now, what do you say about people who say that this is commonly owned land, though? This is the commons. Any, this is anybody, and, and the government owns it, not the people. The government doesn't own it. It manages it. Um, so, so, the, so the net taxpayers, the people paying taxes, own it. Yes, and the latecomers, invaders, they don't – those who have not um, been ripped off to pay for it, 
have uh, no um, no proof to show that they have any um, any reason why they should be able to use it. Okay. Which I, I, I mean, obviously, I mean, they're, they're essentially going to free ride. They're going to come in, they're going to free ride. And the idea of, of absolute freedom of movement is insane because a common law provides for easements. If you have business, you, you work in town and you're surrounded on all sides by other property owners. Common law, for instance, uh, British common law provides for an easement. You have legitimate business in town. Or if you're in town and you want to get home, I mean, you live there. You have legitimate business. They have to let you cross over. But that doesn't mean you can stop, take a few apples, take a nap, take a bath in their stream or whatever that runs through their property. It means get, get a, come into the property, get to the other side as quick as you can. If it's so wide that you can't cross it in the day, you might be able to camp there, but you get up the next day and you get out and you get moving. Um, and, and that's pretty much the way that, that the British common law has always put it. But, Johannes, uh, you kind of have some perspectives because I, I think you, you've looked at things both from sort of the perspective of someone in South America, Chile. You said you were born there, but you also uh, spent time in Austria. What is your take on the concept or the idea of freedom of total, I mean, just total freedom of movement across uh, another country's commons, across private property, whatever? Okay, I will give you one data. Chile had in the last three years. Chile is an almost uh, developed country, has an income that's almost like this, that from Hungary. Uh, Chile had in the last three years with uh, the government of Michel Bachelet, a socialist, open borders. We got the equivalent, as is more than 1.2 million, that's the equivalent of 20 millions coming in three years into the United States. Uh, the result of that is the collapse of all public services. And it has been like that. Uh, the government also is, is um, giving them the privilege to be the first to be attended in, at uh, the hospital systems, at schools, and everything else. So uh, we have made in Latin America now the experience of have a developing country that has something to offer with open borders. And the consequences has been the rise of criminality beyond the point we knew it ever. Uh, we have now uh, gangster syndicates from uh, Colombia uh, working in the north. So if you want to kill somebody or let somebody be killed, it costs you no more than $1,000 now in, uh, in uh, Chile. Wow. Uh, we had an immigration... Uh, forced by the Chilean government together with the United Nations there is your Hillary Clinton uh, playing also a role uh, from Haiti <laughs> with over 600,000 Haitians coming into Chile in the last three years all coming in as tourists and not leaving oh, and, our yeah. and our government doing nothing to stop this that was one of the causes why. Please. Can I ask you a real quick question before you move on? Uh, how many of these of these people do you think are how many how many might be coming in from say Venezuela? Uh, from Venezuela, around three hundred thousand. Which is still a significant number, correct? No, so you can't. Uh, you have to to remember that Chile has seventeen million people. So it's like. 
okay, it's two hundred to three hundred thousand for Chile. It's around I don't know one point five to two million to the to the United States. Wow. And in wow. the proportion to the population, okay. But we right. are mar- much we are much poorer than the United States. We have really still a lot of poverty. And but that's another another question. The question is here is also on the propaganda made by the government to convince us in Chile systematically over the whole press the same like the United States. You cannot you can't imagine how similar this is to also the same what's happening in Europe that we were getting the best heads and uh, that uh, it will be enrichment for Chile and everything and and, and this, <laughs> this 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 bullshit well, this, it's global bullshit yeah um, and <laughs> so we were uh, you say the enrichment that's that's yes. the uh, the enrichment that's that's the uh, where you can hire somebody to kill somebody that's where you're paying people to help enrich enrich somebody right Oh yeah, uh, and we got we got then six hundred thousand people from a country that has a sixty percent literacy rate. In confronted with the revol- industrial revolution four point zero digitalization and robotization, that means that yeah. we in Chile will lose for sure around thirty percent of the jobs where th- that are made by people who's not qualified. And what we do then? We have two, and and here is just one point that I have to make one because it it drives me crazy. First, if it is true that we are getting the best heads of the rest of the world, then we are exploding the poorest countries in the world, and that it's not ethical. And if it's not I, true, I agree. That's a wonderful, wonderful point. Yes. What we're doing by by doing that is is pushing making those countries worse off by taking their best people. Correct. And if it's not true, then you are, excuse me, you are, you are putting a, a very big uh, bowl of bullshit in front of your own poor people <laughs> and saying them they have to, to like it. That's the second point. And the third point is by allowing these um, people who are not satisfied with their own governments and their own systems to go from rotten systems to those that still works you're putting out pressure from the will to reform in these countries there will be right. no no not not a single movement there will would be no french revolu- revolution if the French could have just go over the border to, to Germany and get three thousand dollars in the month, yeah, uh, and a yeah. free housing and a car, there would be no French Revolution. They would why, have just why, why said, you know, and, we go and over. Change the system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Of why course. change the system? Well, well um, uh, Chris, uh, where are you? Where do you fall on the? Uh, and, I, and I think I took your answer too. But where do you fall on the whole? Uh, unlimited freedom of movement is to anywhere you want. Um, well, you know, uh, my my grandma is an immigrant from Mexico, um, but immigration she she arrived here in around 1950, possibly sooner, but around that time. It well, immigration to the United States was a lot different. If you did not come 
and you did not contribute to the host society, then you starved. You, if you did not get, have a job and you get, did not give back to your host, you starved. You, if you didn't buy a home, you were homeless. So you had to contact someone and say, hey, I want to give to your country. If you didn't do that, then you starved and you went home. So I, I hear stories about this. Because my family has been to Mexico, I've been to Mexico, and it's not a good place. It's a shithole country. I will tell you that. I've got no shame in telling you that. So as someone who is probably second, third generation uh, immigrant, I'm going to say uh, these immigrants now need to seriously think what is good for the host population, what is good for white people. What is good for people who were here before you? How are you giving to them? If immigrants thought like that, I'd have no problem with them. Millions of them, probably tens of millions of them, do not think that way. And so those people, since they have rejected what is good for the host population, need to leave. They can cry about, oh, this is vile, you're so uncompassionate. No, no, no. We're not uncompassionate. We want you to explain to us with money and with services and goods and with payments of taxes why you're good for the host population. I, that until they do that, I, I do not feel the slightest bit bad about them getting physically removed and sent back to their country. We, my, the immigrants of, my, of, of, of before 1965 have contributed – and given taxes and thought deeply about what they can do to make this, pl- this place uh, a better home for the people that already live there. People who became doctors, people who invented, people who paid thousands in taxes have done so. So I, I'm not anti-immigrant. I, I'm not anti-brown people. You know, I, I just really think the question is not asked very often, how are these immigrants benefiting the host population? Right, and and I think that that's a you're making some very good points. So so where we were talking about earlier, uh, uh, where Johannes, for instance, mentioned that uh, a lot of the people that are coming in are not actually a net benefit. They they're telling us they're telling us it's a net benefit, but they're not. And what's happened is is that probably, as you pointed out, you know, sixty. 70 years ago, because immigration happened in such a way that they were uh, not able to access public services and a lot of public goods, and they could they could get into the they could use the public infrastructure, but they had to actually get out there and work in order to eat. And what's happened now is uh, the kind of the kind of people that are coming a good chunk of them, not all of them, but a large chunk of them are coming to access public goods, not just to find to find work. They're they're accessing public goods. So they're not a net benefit. They're actually a uh, uh, um, a net drain. They're they're actually using more than they're putting into the system. And, and I think where where we run into the problem with that is that uh, it's not the average. Where, where we miss the point, okay, is who this benefits and who it doesn't benefit. It doesn't benefit as a, us as a general population, but there are certain individuals who are at the top of our of our food our financial structure, people who own large corporations have a lot of money. 
they're benefiting mightily from all the cheap labor that they're not paying for because the taxpayer is paying for a chunk of it through welfare and public goods. And then they're paying very, very low wages to these people uh, for the work that they're doing. So it's a win-win from them from every direction. And so they're going to continue to pump money to these politicians. They're going, and it's a, it's a low time prefer or high time preference thing for these politicians, which goes back to the time preference. Uh, they, they want that campaign money. They've got to get reelected. So they're going to vote the way these people want them to. Um, David, uh, where do you uh, come in on this as far as uh, that goes? I mean, we're talking about uh, absolute freedom of movement. Obviously, uh, freedom of movement to me feels like a justification for some people to let people in. But I think there are guys out there, which I, I hate to say, it's almost like saying, uh, uh, you know, the Dark Lord Sauron for me in many ways, uh, Larkin Rose. Um, they, they talk about uh, open borders and total freedom of movement. He's he's a commie. <laughs> Regardless of what his ideology is, he's a commie in practice, I would have to say. Yeah. Um, his idea, he he wants everyone to everyone to him who opposes elite um, latecomers who have not been invited illegals coming into the country. He he says they're. Uh, CJWs, culture justice warriors, and he refers to these people as collectivists, and and it's simple-minded. It's uh, very two-dimensional thinking, isn't it? Yes, yes. He, um, I mean, you're, he says you're either a collectivist or an individual, and. And that can't be correct because we all engage in voluntary collective activity. I mean, we have families. We go to work for businesses with other people. We go to church. And so really the question is not about whether you're a collectivist or an individual. It's whether you're able to voluntarily collectivize with other people or whether you're forced to collectivize or forced to associate with other people, which in many cases this this is forced association. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, it is. And uh, he – he just doesn't see he doesn't see the forest for the trees. He um <laughs> gotta look at that tree. Forget the forest. Yeah, he his, I, his I, ideas are, are are out there. He he's a he's collectivist himself and he's just like virtue signaling from the center like center of the universe like people say. Because he's Yeah, I, uh, I, I mean I, I can agree with you on that i think that that one of the things that you what i see with him is, is an inability to to connect with with our current reality uh you know you you want to try and apply ideas and 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 ethical decisions for a world that doesn't exist into a world in which we have all these problems and, and then stick your head in the sand and pretend they're going to go away yes larp and rose LARP and, <laughs> live action role playing larp and rose um, Chris, you, 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 uh, have, have you had any conversations with that gentleman any, any recently? Larkin Rose? <laughs> yeah. About, about the extent of my conversation with Larkin Rose. The, the, this is the extent of it, okay? I was featured in a video um, called Questions Libertarians Have for Statists. Uh, you could watch it on YouTube. Very popular video. 
uh, and Larkin was in it. Now, my question in that video was, uh, what rights uh, essentially do people have to stop others from seceding? Uh, Larkin had a bunch of other anarcho-capitalist questions, but he, he and I were both in that video. Uh, second interaction I had with Larkin Rose in my, almost one of my final ones was, uh, I went onto his page and uh, I essentially called him a homewrecker and he banned me. Uh, those are pretty much, that's the extent of my interaction with Larkin. Um, so I, I don't really have much else to say about, about him that hasn't already been said by the rest of us. What means he right. defended his bullets? No, 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 no. He has no desire to defend his borders at all. Ah, no, no, no. no but it's on his side. <laughs> well, Larkin, what did uh, you say, it, Johan? Yeah. Oh, I, I was just, uh, I was just uh, thinking about when that if you, if you don't like a person in your own domain. And your country is your mm -hmm. domain, inherited or earned by hard work and by the acceptance of your sit of the other citizens. Uh, if you don't want a person there, uh, a person there that is not contributing or is being a charge for everybody, then it is right. your right, as it was his right to ban uh, somebody who was uh, who was more or less invading his. His domain. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes, I agree with you. I, he, he probably should have banned me. I, I 100% agree. I ban people all the time from my pages. I, I 100% But 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 Chris, you, you can't ban people. Freedom freedom of movement. That's true. I have freedom of movement, Johannes, to go onto Larkin's page <laughs> and ask him why he slept with a married, man, married man's wife. I have complete freedom of movement to do that. He should be consequent <laughs> about that, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's that's the problem. That's the most the, the problem with the most people who are what uh, what are acting about this. Highly uh, ethical loaded uh, themes. They don't see how this is unpractical, and because it is so unpractical, and it, you cannot win people for the more important issues that are, for example, the defense of uh, liberties, the defense of the of, of your of your rights as owners of your own of your own country. Well, we can. Well, you know, how, the, the thing, Johannes, is that is that you know when you look at that, okay, so he's going to ban you from from his from his Facebook page because he's it's not pleasant for you to be there, uh, and and then but but it's okay for for him to advocate for other people to uh, come in uh, essentially all over your property whether you like it or not. I, I almost feel like that, that's what Hopper was talking about. He talks about people you know who who are. Involved in performative contradictions, but anyway, it's not yep. easy. It's not easy to to get these people to think when in a in a linear way. That means when that, <laughs> that, that that they keep their path. You know, they act. They normally act when more uh, very different from that. What they say they should. Uh, what what should be. This has moral contradiction, and it's terrible to see. Yeah, yep. yeah, I agree, and I think uh, I think so. 
So one of the things that we talked about, we've talked about quite a bit so far. We've talked about um, public goods, commons, um, and and how politicians handle it. And of course, we've talked about people who come in across the, into other country, into other nations, other societies, and uh, take advantage of those public goods, which are essentially owned by the people that live there. Um, and so, do you think, for instance, uh, David, that there would be any sort of difference? in a society in which power was inherited uh, versus, or when I say power, you know, over, say, there are no commons. Let's say everything is essentially owned in, in some form or fashion uh, by an aristocracy or, or a group of allodial-type uh, aristocracy. And it's all, all private land. Do you see the difference between inherited power of that form and elected or appointed bureaucratic power? Oh yes, representative power. As I explained earlier, um, they they take the commons and then they exploit it to uh, because they're not because they're not the owners of it. On the inverse side of it, the an aristocracy or a hereditary owner of private land would have a low time preference because he is the primary owner of all. Uh, of his like in the king in his kingdom he he's the primary owner of his land and he wouldn't want to tax people so highly that um it would ruin his assets that he'd gain from it there's like a, a self-interest so he would there. destroy his ability to 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 extract income long term if he were to overtax or overuse the the land yes and and any uh like the elected officials it would not it would not do that right i mean it, yes yes the, official, i think your point is elected officials they're not concerned about 20 years from now they're just looking at the next election yes uh and the it would be essentially through uh instead of like a constitution uh the yeah like the king like with the representative democracy, you'd have like a more of a common law set up, and right. common law as uh, as I was listening to Hoppe today, he said that it would be it would be like a um, yeah they they rejected um, new law as if it it was routinely rejected. It wasn't. Uh, mm-hmm. If so they weren't real, real progressive, basically they were fairly conservative. Yes. Oh yes, yes. Okay. They when oh, good law was always preserved. New laws that were like uh, that were bringing bads to the table were routinely rejected. Okay, uh, Chris. I mean, what what kind of uh, viewpoint views do you have of say? Uh, that sort of allodial type of, of, of power structure where it's all based on private property and uh, ver- an inherited inherited power, a lot of it versus uh, democratic and, and uh, appointed bureaucratic power. Well, I can already hear my uh, my critics, um, you know, going after me on this, but I, I still have a positive <laughs> view of monarchy. Uh, Definitely not as positive as uh, my libertarian leanings, but I have a relatively positive view of monarchy. Um, 
people have this misconception that the kings were all powerful. As Johannes pointed out, that was not the case. Uh, the king had to very carefully deal with the landowners in his district. Otherwise, he, there'd be problems for him. Um, you, they, they would revolt against him. They would organize against him. Uh, they'd try to get rid of him. If the king did not play ball and did not do what was in the best interest of the landowners, uh, he, he would not retain his office, and therefore his family would, would be subject to shame. So it was within his best interest to think about what his acts, how his actions were good for the landowners. Uh, because if he didn't do so, his whole entire family was, was subject to the consequences. So he wanted his child to inherit a good kingdom where the landowners liked his child. He would do what was good for the landowners. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still sympathetic to the workers in a lot of way. I, I don't believe uh, we should in, uh, adopt a system that abuses the working people. Um, but the, the working people, uh, in exchange, if they want a stay at the table, they have to demonstrate that they own enough land to do so. They have to, you know, if they want uh, the king's ear, they have to uh, show him why why their actions why why what they want is going to be good for his future kingdoms so you know looking at the the monarchy in that sort of way um you know it, it's it's a symbiotic relationship both the landowners um have an interest in uh in making sure that the king likes them and the the king uh, in exchange needs to make sure that his actions are good for the landowners the problem with the medieval system is that there was a religious caste bullshit around it where if you you could not become a landowner without uh, extreme uh, uh, without you know an extreme exception of some kind that that was granted to you by some kind of religious right um, so if if there was a monarchy where there was some upward mobility where a good working person could buy their own land, uh, then I, I would I would have no issue living in that kind of system. Um, in fact, if if there weren't any kinds of religious uh, doctrine that prevented that from happening, a, 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 a you know a good hardworking person could buy a good chunk of land, and then they would have the the a defensive force from the king uh, to listen to their needs and wants and make sure they weren't being abused. So that's I have a, I have a positive view of it, but there there are some things we can learn from history about how to make it better. Well, and I think that a lot of what you're talking about is kind of, a, like I said, an, an elodial sort of uh, feudal setup. And, um, and and a lot of the stuff that you see in, in, in some of the countries today who have a, a monarch, uh, they have they still have an elected legislature, so they're still using representative uh, democracy. And uh, another problem that you see is that uh, – they almost, in a lot of cases, are powerless. So, uh, whereas in ancient, you know, the ancient ancient monarchs, a lot of them, uh, their their parliament, so to speak, was actually the aristocrats. They weren't really elected. Even, for instance, the senators in Rome were wealthy, landed uh, individuals, and uh, oftentimes, essentially, noble families. And so, Caesar would deal with them. 
Uh, and so really, I mean, uh, respectively, uh, it was all centered around land ownership and a lot of the power was inherited. Now, I mean, there was some negative aspects to that. It wasn't perfect. There were a lot of, of bad things that happened, and, and a lot of times people were treated very poorly into those systems. However, I think in the long run type setup, I think one of the things that Hoppe alludes to, and he says this quite outright, is that you know monarchy is far from a perfect system, but but it's better than democracy, is what he pointed out, and then World War One was sort of a, a huge mistake. So, uh, uh, Johannes, what what is your opinion on on that type of setup? Well, uh, the first time uh, I think that's uh, again it's a very complex uh, issue. I would say the most important thing here is has to do with uh, power. Uh, you don't want people who want to have power having power. That's the pro- that's the main problem you have uh, with with uh, representative uh, democracies is that it, they attract a lot of psychopaths. Into the into the into the uh, cohorts of people who wants who are driving into the centers of uh, power. You don't have that in a uh, system what uh, where the king is being king because he was born like king. He feels the power more than a bur- as a burden and as an obligation than as a prize to win. And I think this is a, psycholog- a very important psychological difference between uh, the representative democracy and the monarchy. Uh, the second point I wanted uh, to make is that uh, kings, as they understand themselves as owners of the country, have to keep their legitimacy uh, to respect the ownership of the others. If you don't do that as a king, you're uh, destroying the basis of your own uh, of your own power and of your own position. Um, Friedrich Frederick the Great said once that a king that asks from their citizens more than a quarter uh, or twenty five percent of their annual income would be a, ty- a tyrant. Uh, let us see what happens with with democracies now. Okay, when we're paying in Europe 50, 60, 70 percent of our annual uh, annual uh, income to a system that says when it represents us, doesn't make a lot of sense, isn't it? And the third point I wanted uh, to make is that uh, just to to check the the anti-religious uh, speak before is. Religion and the church were a counterpower, was a balance of power to the to the king. So there was uh, the the medieval times were much freer than uh, modern or postmodern times because the uh, the power of the state all the time checked, at least in the Western world, by the church. And in this, in this display, in this, te- in, this, in this room between both powers, there was enough room to create criticism and keep liberties to criticize or one side or the other. So it not, it's not so easy. The, the position of the, of the church in the medieval times was not absolutely negative and, uh, as, as, norm- as it is normally portrayed. And the second point was that a king could only keep its legitimacy 
as long as he didn't go against the basic rules of the church, and that meant you don't steal, you don't murder, you don't get the women of, you know, the Ten Commandments. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's 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 an interesting point, and I I think there's something to be said for both what Chris said and for what you said, because I think there's some legitimate uh, a point from both from both sides of that, and it's it's good to hear that because I I think that uh, there was a lot of things that went on with the church that were questionable and probably shouldn't have happened and some limiting factors. But at the same time, uh, the the church uh, behaved in in a very, in a lot of ways, in some cases, it it was very good to have it there as a limiting, a limiting, a limiter on power, a governor, a governance uh, on, on power and stopping, stopping monarchs from having just total power. And when, and when you see uh, in a lot of places in Europe, when they started casting off the Catholic Church, uh, you started seeing uh, some more, a lot more tyranny. I mean, I think you start looking at guys like Henry VIII, who, who did some very questionable things when they were in control. Um, oh, he invented divorce, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. And, and Modern times, he, divorce. He beheaded his ex-wives. It was he, he beheaded his ex-wives. He, he didn't just divorce them. He went ahead and. But got you know rid of why? Excuse me. You know why? Because he lost Ireland by the first settlement of uh, a normal divorce, <laughs> he had to pay. It. Yes, of course. If you lo- if you lose the half of your income, it's better to kill your ex-wife, isn't it? <laughs> that, that's, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if I should agree with that or not. I don't want to get myself in any trouble here. Um, it's it's of course it's okay. I am I am I am fourteen hundred miles away, so I can say something like that without having a bunch of antifas knocking at my door. But but it is and 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 another point I wanted to make: the founding fathers were not stupid people in the United States. They were thinking about making George Washington a king. He rejected right, right. Well, I think so, the point that sort of, you know, we're talking about it, setting up a king and so on, and, and the United States, the United States was very, very, I mean, had that ability to buy a property like Chris was talking about in the, in, when you first started. As a matter of fact, a lot of guys, including like Jefferson's a perfect example, he was the richest, maybe the richest, in those dollars versus today's dollars, maybe the most wealthy president that we have ever had in the United States. And he made most of that wealth by, by, uh, Surveying large tracts of land that were not owned by anybody, and then selling them off. He actually uh, invented uh, land surveying that, that has led to the modern version of land surveying. It came, comes from Jefferson's one of the major contributions from him. Um, and, and so, land ownership was huge uh, in the United States, and, and the ability to get to land and own it was huge. And, and so, I think when when Chris is talking about, you know, he he would be perfectly happy with a system where you had some sort of monarch and but as long as you had economic freedom on the inside and so being where i come from and, and some of my sympathies do still lay uh with that uh, that anarcho-capitalist way of thinking um i i would i would have actually no issue with a system in which or, or almost no issue with a system in which you had total economic freedom almost anarcho-capitalist on the inside and then a setup with some sort of um Head of state who only had power to deal uh, with external problems, and all the inter- had very little or no power uh, internally. 
Uh, and, and there was actually, there's been some systems like that in, in ancient times. For instance, the Saxons. Saxon kings yep. had lots of power to do things and to uh, execute military campaigns to fight wars against foreign enemies, but very little to no power internally when it came to uh, establishing law or anything like that at all. Uh, that was all handled by, by, by a system of courts called boars, and people would belong to the boars or not belong. They'd pick their boar. And so everything was this was really almost like a private-slash-common law system. And, and I think, for me, that, that's almost a per, almost perfect system if you want a free market. Um, but, uh, you know, thinking about that, um, I think uh, a lot of people would say, well, you know, we went to democracy now and uh, – we have all these modern systems, and there's no way that that uh, monarchies could have uh, resulted in sort of advances and things that we have these days. And I don't know that that's true because I mean, if you look at Japan, it's still basically a it, it's really a modernized feudal system, uh, which is uh, you know, all of their major corporations are are tied to uh, at least were originally tied to the, the the aristocratic families. They had an emperor all the way up until recently. He was also the head of their religion. Uh, it was pretty much a modern feudal society. What, what do you think about that, David? Yes. Um, all all our successes, our recent um, societal buildup, isn't because of democratic law or constitutional law. Law didn't bring us to that point. It was the uh, freedom and pursuit of capital and the buildup of capital over the ages that has allowed us to um, have all this freedom. Uh, yeah, that's basically what I get. What I get from that. So, um, uh, Chris, I mean, what, what have you thought about that before? If you looked at, like, for instance, Japan, I mean, a lot of people try to lump them in. They seem to want to lump them in with, with, uh, uh, well, fascist Nazi Germany and so on years ago. Uh, and and they really weren't. They were they were really a more of a monarch monarch monarchist type system, a monarchy with an under with with sort of an injection of, of republic, you know. And there was still an arist- uh, aristocracy there, and so on. And their entire economic setup was essentially modernized feudalism. Well, what do you think about that system, for instance, versus democracy, or even versus a, a fascistic system, which some of those systems they allied with during World War II? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know much about Japan, so I can't speak too intelligently to this. What I've noticed about Japan uh, is that they are very ethnically homogenous. Uh, they are, as Larkin would put it, culture justice warriors. The studies that I have done about <laughs> Japan would, uh, would indicate that they uh, very much value their people and their culture and their traditions and from what I've heard from other people, you know, everyone says China is this big looming, looming economic threat. Well, back in the 20th century, uh, Japan was a pretty big deal on the economic world stage. So from what I under, I mean, they rebuilt, they came back from the nuclear bombs. They rebuilt very well. They, they have these, these, these massive advances in technology. So just from what I can observe uh, and correlate with, 
with what I know about their culture, they've done well for themselves. I know recently their economy is stagnant, but you know, that's, that's basically what I know about Japan. Well, I think, I think they've kind of started to come out of some of the, they had a high debt uh, to, they had a high debt ratio. And I, I think they've kind of started to come out of it. They, a lot of the advances that you're starting to see in, in modern automation is, are coming out of Japan. So they're, the way that they're coping with their low birth rate, instead of importing lots of cheap immigrant labor, uh, they are resorting to more and more um, uh, inventive ways of automa- inventive means of automation. So uh, more computerization, robotics. They're very, very advanced on robotics. Um, and so, so there are a whole different uh, thought process on how to do it. And one of the things I have to say is that I see them as more right-leaning. I, do, I don't – a lot of people have a tendency to view fascism, national socialism as right-leaning, and I don't really. I, I see those as revolutionary ideologies. And, and while they glorify a lot of the things, of the traditions of the past and the, the empire, they really glorify the power. It was kind of a romantic movement, but still very progressive thinking if you look at the things that they did. But I see Japan as a very traditional uh, nation, even today, very much right-wing, because to me tradition is, is the, the cornerstone, not just, not just idealizing tradition, but actually living it. And, and it's there in Japan. Uh, and so, so I see them as actually, if you really want an, a, an example of a right-wing power, who is successful? I think Japan is, is a very good one. Johannes, uh, Johannes, what, what do you think about um, about Japan? I mean, you're very knowledgeable about Europe, South America. Do you, have you read or studied Japan very much? Well, uh, a little, but not too much. Yeah, I know that Jap and, uh, Japan, the monarchy, never had a lot of power. It was around 500, 600 years. Uh, the the emperor has been a, a decorative figure from the time of the shoguns on. So uh, he is a central figure, a religious fi- uh, figure for for the Japanese, and that's why they didn't want it. Want uh, they were were willing to fight the USA to the end just to keep him. Uh, I think um, the cause because they surrendered after Hiroshima and Nagasaki wasn't the bomb. But because when they were guaranteed that the emperor would uh, have no harm, that was what they were asking before the bombs. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Just to capitulate, they were they were trying to get a peace, just when keeping the emperor. And then they well, got two atomic bombs when they kept their emperor and they made peace. When the uh, two <laughs> atomic bombs were not really necessary, well, isn't it? Well, I, I'm not sure I really agree with that. Japan, and this has been proven, sued for peace before the bombs were even dropped. They yeah, didn't yeah, want I'm, to keep their emperor. Yeah, but that's not what made them surrender. No, no. Of course, the bombsman helped, but the guarantee that the emperor would not happen, uh, happen no harm was, I think, more important yeah. Then, uh, then uh, the bombs itself, because they were, excuse me, but a country where their soldiers and partly their civili- uh, civilians were running uh, with their bare ha- uh, hands into the American lines, when yelling bansai. Do you really think well, they would be impressed by two bombs? <laughs> They're already pretty much throwing themselves at the enemy. 
is what you're saying. And so that if they had to die, they were going to die. Well, that's because they, I guess they, they, they sort of viewed the emperor as, as their god. That means for all intents. Yes, of course. Yeah. It was it was a, a, a religious a religious mother. Uh, now the Japanese are very collective uh, collectivist, and their problem is that this collectivism that is very old and may be explained by their little country and huge population, uh, uh, drives them the creativity away. So they're very good copying and perfecting technologies, but they're not so uh, good by uh, exercising criti uh, critics. And, crit and exercising critic, being heretic, is what has made um, uh, the Western world so successful in comparison. Uh, that Japan has no uh, terrorism, Islamic terrorism. You see, it's because they have no Muslims in the country. That's, that there is a correlation right. between having Muslims in your country and having Muslim terrorists in your country. Um, and I think they will keep they will keep the way they are. Possibly they will move direction China in the next in the next uh, years. One. Uh, as long as the as the U.S. powerman flats uh, away uh, in the hands of their progressive uh, political forces that are destroying the USA from within, right? And and well, and we will see there an uh, axis between China and Japan and Vietnam that will decide over our future in the next uh, centuries. I don't think when our world will be a much freer one under their concept of collectivism. Um, David, uh, what do you think about that? I mean, uh, do you see uh, uh, China as becoming a preeminent world power, even even after a, a major economic conflict or, or military conflict in the United States? Or do you see Japan as becoming a major power down the road, or or both? Like, like Johannes is pointing out, he seems to see an, an Asian a a axis there, sort of. Yeah, it would probably exclusively be Japan, China, or both. Uh, I think okay. if they if they became like a world power, the only way that would happen if the United States fell as an economic power. Well, do you? I mean, one of the things that I find interesting about that is that um, uh, none of those three nations have economic systems or, or political systems that resemble Europe or the United States very much. Maybe Japan resembling uh, European or United States type of, of political system the most, and even it's somewhat alien in, in that regard. Uh, um, so in '95, they they had a currency. Ninety-five, they had a currency collapse, all due to. Um, at that time, they were practicing Keynesianism. I am. I don't know if uh, they practice it still. Um, to what level they practice Keynesianism, but they've been influenced by it. Okay. Okay. Well, I knew that they had a high debt ratio. I, I just, I, I just see them as, as a very as sort of the really the only standing example at this point of, of what looks most like a modernized feudal system economically. Um, but uh, going back to 
some of the things we were talking about earlier. We, we kind of got onto this because we were talking about inherited versus elected and, and appointed bureaucratic power. Um, do you think that uh, a parliament or, or a legis- an elective legislature, David, do you think that that is a lot of that is the cause of a lot of the problems that we're experiencing now in the United States is, is that type of system. Yeah, they're basically like just like democracies. Con- you're talking about constitutional monarchy, a constitutional monarchy. Uh, well, any, the, any sort of elected, any sort of elected legislature, uh, representative democracy, which I think Johannes was good at pointing out earlier, is kind of probably worse than other forms of democracy. But go ahead. Yeah, a um, constitutional monarchy, it, it gave more power to the king, and um, it gave more power to the king, and it, what? Well, you guys should go ahead. You're thinking maybe like a long, you say constitutional monarchy, maybe the first one was like something with the Magna Carta. That type of thing going forward? Yes, Magna Carta. Uh, They gave – that thing gave more power to the king. Um, It was all about appeals to the the sentiment of the people, and Mm -hmm. – which may not have been unmerited because the way the serfs were treated and Hoppe, if like – it all could have been avoided on um, the the turn from monarchy to all the way to democracy could have been avoided if serfs were included in the system. Right, right. Well, uh, Chris, I mean, uh, what is your take on as far as legislative bodies, parliaments, congresses, et cetera? I mean, ha- do you think that they are at the heart of a lot of the problems that, that uh, we here in the West experience nowadays? Yeah, I don't think the institution of a Congress is the problem. I think that, um, well, the foreign influence, I'll say, upon these uh, these bodies has been such that it's caused problems. I think there is a certain group of people that is trying to create uh, – a system that is more conducive to outline, uh, uh, outsiders. This group has been expelled many times from countries for doing just that, and it is doing so at the direct expense of the host country. It's undermining those countries. So that's what I think is the probably one of the biggest things that is undermining um, a congressional body that might have worked in some other sense, but it's, it's really uh, – uh, multiplying the problem as of as of late. But do you think that that is is akin to the problem of um, trying to get reelected, raising campaign funds, and uh, at the same time trying to buy votes by making promises to certain groups that are uh, and, and and getting those groups, keeping those groups um, reliant on government and government services and public goods, which only the well. By the way, if only the politician can deliver because public goods are controlled by the government, particularly. 
that whole system, that idea is is bad. Um, I I think that this is why I identify still as an anarcho-capitalist um, because these bodies, uh, you know, essentially uh, have rights delegated to them that should not have ever been delegated to them. Um, and groups of foreign interests have come in and taken advantage of this power that has been improperly delegated and used it to undermine the host nation. So the, the whole problem is, is that these institutions, it's a, it's a really nice, cute idea that you have these groups that can, that can, uh, you know, do these things and represent the people, you know, it's, it's good. Uh, but it, 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 within short periods of time is going to show up and cause all manners of problems for the host people. So, I think it's a combination of both that the fact these, these organizations have the power they do and the fact that they can be taken advantage of that, that ultimately becomes a problem. So, so I guess in, in a way, I mean, you talk about uh, the kind of power that they have. What do you think about the idea that, that they delegate power to bureaucracies and, and those bureaucracies, for instance, a good example are, um, the USDA or so on, and those bureaucracies essentially are – they're actually dealing with foreign governments, some of them, created initially for domestic purposes like the USDA. But they have offices in foreign countries subsidizing uh, foreign farmers and so on. I mean if, if Congress has essentially abdicated all this power to all these bureaucracies, created this giant behemoth. What, what was the question in that? Well, I mean, I mean, what is, what do you think about that? I mean, we, we've we've set up a system where Congress, uh, in in a lot of ways, doesn't even pass laws anymore. It's just, it's just said we're going to give our our authority to this bureaucracy over here, to the to this agency, and and it's done it in just about every aspect of the economy, in domestic life. Well, don't I, you think that I, that is a lot of the problems we're experiencing? I, I think so. I think, again, as I said, this is why a lot of people, a lot of my friends in the alt-right are saying, oh, I'm questioning my libertarian roots. Well, I'm, I'm not, uh, because I understand that if these people did not have rights delegated to them that they don't have, that they wouldn't be able to uh, abuse everyone. So, yeah, I think the fact that um, they're, they're given the right to take your money and give it to another person, especially in another country, is wrong, and it, that, that is a problem. Uh, so, yes, I, I would agree. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's kind of funny that they question their libertarian their, – their anarcho-capitalist or libertarian roots and then turn around you know, because of a problem like this, but then turn around and advocate uh, domestic regulations and all these domestic programs – and say, well, yeah, we, you know, uh, uh, we we want to fix these. Pro- it, it's almost like they've completely forgot about the idea of trying to use government to fix government, uh, which is which is hilarious to me. Anytime I see people arguing for socialist programs, whether they're national socialist programs or communist programs, whatever you want to call them, they're still government. Um, but, uh, Johannes, um, what what do you what are your feelings about um, uh, elected legislative bodies and and the power that they have and the way that they delegate, particularly in Europe and the United States? And, and I mean, do you feel like that's a good thing or a bad thing? And, and why do you feel that way? 
Okay. It is a very, 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 very bad thing. And I will tell you why. Because when, when you earn, I think a legislative, uh, uh, legislative uh, person in the United States earns what? 40 to 50 grand in a year? Maybe more? 60, mm-hmm. 70? More in a lot of cases. A lot more in a lot okay. of cases. Okay. How much costs an uh, election campaign? In the United States, oh. last time, uh, yes, at the last time um, I, I saw the, the, the numbers one for the for the presidential election, I think one between both candidates, there was spent one around four billion dollars. These people all want, who gave this money want something for their money. And when you have elected representatives that can dispose over a budget of a few billion, they will get their money. It's kind of crazy, too, though, that you have, you know, you're talking about that, about running a campaign and all these people doing donations. You know, there's no way that everybody that's donating to that candidate to get what they want is going to get what they want. That is one Surely person, not. and you're talking about millions of people all wanting different things. Uh, I agree, but when you are at the government of Saudi Arabia and you give uh, to uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign thirty million dollar or forty million dollar, and that's what we know, what we know, they gave to her, then you're waiving right. something in return. If you're the government of, of Morocco and you give four million dollar. You're waiting something in return. If you are Mercedes-Benz and you are financing the uh, election campaign of Miss Merkel, then you want something in return. And the problem is that our governments... Okay, the problem is it is much cheaper to uh, pay uh, for a, uh, to corrupt one politician or, if you want, 600 uh, persons in a parliament than to corrupt a full country. That's the advantage of direct democracy. That's why they don't like uh, in Europe very much the system in in Switzerland. And on the other hand, when you are a monarch and you are more or less owning a country, it's very expensive to corrupt you with money from a a company. Because why should you give from your pocket something out you don't need it either one for for your for for your election campaign so you already the problem, own a massive amount of land right so yeah and so you have a a problem with the represent uh, representative democracy one is the corruption in direction to the people itself that are voting when you're taking from some to give to the others to get the votes and the second is upon the people who are giving you the money to make the, uh, the election campaign. So, okay. uh, if you if if you look if you look the, the, the things are very cool minded and you say, man, okay, this is a business. This is a business, man. I will earn in a year eighty grand, but I'm giving out around one million, man. Or if if you're going for the Senate, man, maybe thirty, forty, fifty million. Then you have to ask you to ask yourself, um, really, man, what kind of business, man, is that? <laughs> right, right. So, okay, I mean, so that, there is there is corruption. 
in, inherent to the representative uh, system has been all the time, and we have to get rid of it on, under under uh, under the, the the premise that things have changed uh, as right. as the Congress of the United States or the first Reichstag in Germany was founded. You needed days or weeks to get into the uh, into into the into the location where the decisions were taken as a citizen. That's why you right. had to elect a representative. You don't need that anymore. Right. And so so I, I think I, I think I kinda get where you're going on this. And I and I think you're making a, a great point. And and so um at this point where we're at we're down to about the last three and a half minutes. I wanted to give uh Chris a chance to plug um, I and Cap, and to throw out there any new projects or upcoming things he's got going. A quick thirty seconds, Chris. You want to? Sure. So uh, as always, um, my website is therevolutionaryconservative.com. But because of Facebook censorship, uh, I recommend that you follow us on Gab as well. We are on there at uh, uh, the uh, TR Conservative at TR Conservative on Gab. Uh, I believe that's us. Either I believe it's actually at TRC. At TR Conservative is our maker support page, which you should donate to. You should also go to IAMCAP.com and IAMCAP.com slash donate. Shoot me some Bitcoin or PayPal while you still can. Um, and, yeah, I fo- follow me on all my social media links, Facebook, Twitter, Gab, wherever. Um, but, yeah, I've launched my own website, so you should definitely check that out and toss me some crypto if you if you are so inclined because this stuff is risky for me to get into. All right. And, uh, Johannes, I want to give you a chance again to remind people, in the 30 seconds or so, to remind people of what you have that's upcoming and what, what you have going on. So to all Spanish-speaking listeners – I uh, recommend you to visit my YouTube channel. It's called El Nacional Libertario. And we will meet there. And I hope you will have a good time on looking at uh, my videos. And if you like, then uh, to support me. Everything will be, of course, when taken with the humility what is proper to this <laughs> to this public servant. <laughs> yes. That's Thank it. you very much. And uh, and of course, we have uh, David on and I co-host for uh, Punching Left. We'll have another episode, another several episodes next week. Uh, look forward, to everybody. David, anything you want to throw in there real fast before we before we bring this to a close? Um, read Democracy: The God That Failed. Read of any Hop's works on um, monarchy and democracy. It's uh, great stuff. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, definitely appreciate everybody's participation tonight. I think I've had a really good time. I think this has been an excellent, excellent uh, show, excellent introduction to uh, some of Hoppe's ideas and some of the concepts uh, for right libertarians. So again, I want to say thank you to everybody. Thank you to all the listeners. And uh, we'll see you in another week or so. Thanks a lot, guys. Close all university departments for black, Latino, women, gender, queer studies, and so forth as incompatible with science and dismiss its faculties as intellectual imposters or scoundrels. 
as well demand that all affirmative action commissars, diversity and human resource officers from universities on down to schools and kindergartens be thrown out onto the street and be forced to learn some useful trade. Six, crush the anti-fascist mob. The transvaluation of all values throughout the West, the invention of ever more victim groups, the spread of affirmative action programs, and the relentless promotion of political correctness has led to the rise of an anti-fascist mob, tacitly supported and indirectly funded by the ruling elites.